Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In an experiment. Like, so far. like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, hidden antibiotic resistance in Salmonella and cities feeling the heat. I'm Nick Hell and I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up on the show, I've been finding out about salmonella bacteria lying in stasis and how they could be a hidden source of antibiotic resistance. In this case, we're talking about salmonella typhimurium, a type of salmonella that can cause nasty bouts of food poisoning. It's a common infection with millions of people getting it each year. Now, when this bacterium gets into someone's gut, perhaps via an uncooked burger, it has to compete with a person's gut bacteria for nutrients. If it's able to gain a foothold in the centre of the intestine, the space known as the lumen, the infection can progress, as Wolf Hart from ETH Zurich in Switzerland explains. Once it has achieved this, it starts to invade into gut tissues, and this tissue invasion is causing a response of your gut immune system that tries to protect you, but in principle this is causing the disease symptoms that you then experience. The symptoms of a salmonella food poisoning infection can be very unpleasant. But, thankfully, in most cases, they only last a few days. However, salmonella typhimurium is a tricky beast. Some of the cells in an infection have the ability to go into a sort of reversible state of suspended animation within gut tissue, becoming what are known as persister cells. And these cells are super hardy when in this persister state, For example, they become temporarily impervious to antibiotics that would otherwise kill them. This ability makes treating an infection pretty tricky. So you cannot use antibiotics for salmonella diarrhea therapy. And the reason is you uh, will be able to clear the fast-growing salmonella cells from the gut lumen. But as soon as you stop the antibiotic treatment, some salmonella from somewhere, we assume from the gut tissue, will reseed your gut lumen and you are just as sick as before. Wolf and his colleagues have been looking at Salmonella's talent for temporary invulnerability and they're particularly interested in whether these cells could also be a reservoir of genetic resistance. 
They wanted to know whether persister cells could pass on antibiotic resistance genes to other bacteria in the gut, and they've got a research paper about it in this week's Nature. Now, bacteria are extraordinarily promiscuous and regularly share genes among themselves. One of the ways they do this is by passing tiny circles of DNA called plasmids from a donor to a recipient. That's one of the ways that antibiotic resistance genes can spread. To find out the role that reawakened persister cells play in this promiscuity, the research team infected mice with a strain of Salmonella typhimurium that contained a plasmid with an antibiotic resistance gene. They infected the mice either orally or by injection and then treated them with a different antibiotic, not one that the Salmonella was resistant to. This then killed off any free-living Salmonella, leaving just the persister cells hiding out in the intestines of the mice. Then we were entering into a second phase of this experiment. We were asking what happens if we are now adding a second bacterial strain that doesn't carry the plasmid yet into the mouse gut. So we could orally infect mice with a second wave of bacteria and then we could ask can we see at all that the resistance plasmids would end up in the population of the bacteria from the second wave? And the quick answer is yes, it did. For this second wave, the team introduced both a strain of Salmonella lacking the resistance plasmid and a strain of E. coli, which is a common gut bacteria. They found that the resistance plasmid, hidden safely away in the persister cells, was able to spread to both sets of newcomers. And this happened quickly. In fact, only a small number of reawakened persisters and a couple of days were needed before 99% of the new bacteria carried the plasmid. What's more, this transfer happened without any selective pressure. Normally, bacteria only keep hold of a plasmid giving resistance to antibiotic X, say, if antibiotic X is present. In this case, though, the Salmonella persisters were never exposed to antibiotic X, and yet they kept hold of the plasmid and were able to pass it on. Wolf thinks that this system is an important one to consider when thinking about how antibiotic resistance can spread. So far, the general feeling is that the overuse of antibiotics is the key driver of this spread. And this is certainly true, because as soon as you apply an antibiotic to animals or to infected people, you will select and help the resistance plasmid-carrying bacteria to bloom up. But we would like to point out that there is other mechanisms that will also help to uh, spread resistance plasmids and in our case no use of antibiotics is actually involved. Natalie Balaban from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem also looks at antibiotic resistance in persister cells but wasn't involved in this research. She was impressed with the way it was carried out. They really did uh, a very uh, extensive work with different systems doing it in vivo you know because experiment on persisters are often done in vitro, where it's much easier. Being able both to, to study this in different models and then also to directly visualize persisters from the gut tissue itself is really a, a tour de force. Of course, it's important to note that this work was done in mice. So we'll have to wait and see whether this method of spreading antibiotic resistance is of importance in other animals or humans. But if it is... What's to be done to prevent this pool of persistent cells spreading antibiotic genes in the environment? Wolf's got an idea. Well, the most efficient way to solve this problem is to prevent the infection. And we found out that you can actually reduce the formation of these 
sister cell reservoirs in the host tissue if you vaccinate the host before you infect with these plasmid-carrying salmonella. Wolf suggests that a vaccination strategy could be of particular relevance in an agricultural setting where animals can be infected by multiple strains of salmonella. Preventing the spread of antibiotic resistance is something that's been highlighted by governments as being of worldwide importance. But achieving this will require a greater understanding of the underlying mechanisms, as Natalie explains. I think that uh, new ideas uh, come from uh, these basic research directions, and persisters is one example of a phenomenon that was seen uh, in labs that can explain the failure of antibiotic treatment. So it is a fascinating example of a very basic uh, science idea that slowly uh, gains attention in the medical world that may lead to understand how to get rid of uh, resistant bacteria by a different mode. That was Natalie Balaban from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. You also heard from Wolf Hart from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. You can read his paper over at nature.com. At the end of the show, we'll of course have the news chat, where we'll be hearing about a mysterious radiation spike. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Anna Nagel. You'd think that nighttime predators would be darker in colour to remain hidden from their prey. But for barn owls, bright plumage might actually help them hunt. An international team of researchers has found that whiter barn owls had better hunting success during a full moon. To find out why, they took taxidermied barn owls of different shades and ziplined them towards voles under simulated moonlight. They found that under conditions like a bright full moon, the lighter owls were more likely to cause the rodents to freeze, making them easier to catch. The authors suggest that this may help explain why there's such a variety of colours in barn owls. Whilst lighter owls have better hunting success during a full moon, darker owls rule the roost on gloomier nights. Swoop on that research over at Nature Ecology and Evolution. Dogs. Man's best friend. But they haven't always been this way. And in fact, it appears that humans have slowly moulded their brains over the centuries. A team of scientists in the US compared brain images of 33 dog breeds that differed in size and behaviour. They found clear differences in brain structure between breeds that weren't just because of body size or head shape. In fact, these differences were linked with behaviours like guarding and companionship and appear to be a recent feature of dog evolution. These findings suggest that humans have shaped the brains of our canine companions through selective breeding and this could give insights into the link between their brain structure and behaviour. Go fetch that research over at the Journal of Neuroscience. Since moving to London, I've found that it has a couple of problems. It's busy and it's noisy for a start, but one thing I didn't expect was the heat. A few weeks ago, Europe was in the midst of a heatwave, and here in London, there were temperatures recorded as high as 36 degrees Celsius. That's around 97 degrees Fahrenheit for our US listeners. Now, I can't lay the blame for this entirely at London's feet, 
it was hot all over the UK, but in cities, it was particularly sizzling. So as a general trend, um, cities are warmer than the surrounding. This is Gabriele Manoli, a climate researcher at University College London. He's describing what's known as the urban heat island effect. Now, there are a number of reasons for cities to be hotter than their surroundings. For example, they're filled with buildings using energy and emitting heat. There's also buses, trucks and cars rushing around, which again warms things up. The effects of this go beyond being merely uncomfortable. In 2003, thousands of people in France died in a heatwave, many of them concentrated in cities like Paris. And hot cities are set to become more of a problem as the climate warms. Gabriele has been trying to better understand what causes urban heat islands, and in this week's Nature, he's got a paper out all about it. We wanted to see if there are some global trends in terms of urban heat islands. To do this, Gabriele constructed a mathematical model using over 30,000 data points on city temperatures. By combining this model with data on different factors, like the size or complexity of a city, he was able to find what were the main things associated with the magnitude of urban heat islands. And we were able to link the intensity of urban heat island to only two variables, population and uh, mean annual precipitation in the region. Now, it was already known that rainfall and population have effects on urban heat islands. A bigger population generally means the city is larger and denser, exacerbating any drivers of urban heating. But Gabriele was able to show that this is consistent across the globe. In terms of rainfall, it has been predicted that more rain in an area should lead to relatively hotter heat islands, which seems a little counterintuitive. To understand this, it's important to know that urban heat islands are measured in comparison to their surroundings. So, in a place with high rainfall, there are often lots of plants, and plants tend to cool down the environment as water evaporates from their leaves. So, rainy places tend to have lots of cooling plants everywhere, except in cities. That means, comparatively, the cities in these areas are much hotter than their surroundings. Gabrielli again showed that this was the case globally, but only up to a point. Plants can only do so much, so at a certain level of rainfall, the effect tails off. Because of this, Gabrielli suggests that having more plants may help prevent urban heat islands in places like London, but for very rainy cities like Singapore, it might not be so effective. If you're in a wet, very wet place, let's say the tropics, you need much more vegetation to reduce temperature at the city scale than if you are in a dry place. And this means that basically almost the entire city area should be vegetated if you want to, you know, reduce this warming. There's not a one-size-fits-all to combat urban heating. And so for tropical wet regions, different tactics need to be employed. So what can be done to make life more bearable for city dwellers? I spoke to Geoffrey Raven, an urban designer who has been researching different design solutions to tackle urban heat islands. He has some ideas to help cool wet tropical cities. The evidence that we have drawn from you know, our research and, and actually testing it 
in different case studies is that the flow of air is actually quite important in tropical environments. Airflow can help lift warmer air out of the city and cool it. This could be accomplished by building cities to take advantage of the prevailing winds. For example, rather than blocking winds with buildings, parks can be placed that allow the cool breeze to flow through the city. Jeffrey also thinks that city-scale land surface temperature analyses like Gabrielli's are very useful, but we need more zoomed-in information. Land surface temperature analysis that is at a much higher level needs to be then augmented by a more granular analysis that takes the form of actually getting into the actual urban center itself, speaking to the local population, and doing some basic analysis of uh, climactic considerations and the microclimate of an urban district. This is important because we can then start to evaluate where are the priority areas in an urban district. So rather than just looking at whole cities and trying to think of ways to cool them, Jeffrey suggests that identifying hotspots within the city and targeting them can make a bigger difference to urban dwellers. Preventing urban areas having such high temperatures is only going to grow in importance. Not only is climate change making temperatures go up, but more of us are moving to cities. Here's Gabriele. More than 50% of people now live in cities, and uh, this is this percentage is uh, projected to increase to something like 68% by 2050. So definitely, you know, this will affect a large portion of population in the near future. That was Gabriele Manoli of University College London, previously at ETH Zurich, where he did this work. You also heard from Jeffrey Raven of Raven Architecture and Urban Design and the New York Institute of Technology. If you want to give Gabrielli's paper a read, then it's over in the usual place. Finally then, on the show, it's time, of course, for the news chat. And joining me once again is Lizzie Gibney, senior reporter here at Nature. Lizzie, thanks for dropping by. Thanks for having me, Ben. Well, our first story today is one that you've been looking into for Nature News, and uh, and it centres on a tragic nuclear incident in Russia that happened a couple of weeks back. And uh, and this is a mystery that uh, a lot of folks are trying to get to the bottom of. Exactly. Um, it is a bit of a mystery. So information has been quite slow to emerge from official sources in Russia, and there's some speculation that it involved some, some weapons testing. Um, And there have also been lots of conflicting reports. So what we've tried to do is piece together exactly what we definitely do know, and then figure out how scientists are trying to understand what, from that, we can tell is likely to have happened. Mm. I mean, before we get into sort of the key questions, then let's give a bit of background to what actually happened. Uh, I mean, and there was an explosion of sorts in, in a Russian naval base. That's right. So we know that there was an explosion. We know that very sadly, five people died, five scientists died. Um, and one of them uh, used to work on one of the projects at CERN, at the Alice Collaboration. And we know that it happened on an offshore platform. And that at the same time, there's a big spike in radiation, gamma radiation, that was seen at a detector about 30 or 40 kilometres away. But we didn't for a long time know what kind of isotopes, what kind of radioactivity was actually released. 
And then last week we were told exactly what isotopes they were. So that is a lot more helpful for scientists in terms of actually piecing together what might have happened, what might have exploded. Yes, I mean, I imagine uh, that uh, an explosion will give away a bit of a fingerprint based on the isotopes that are released. Is, is, is that the case? Exactly. So, and what we know from these isotopes, so it's uh, strontium-91, barium-139, barium-140 and lenthium-140, they would all have been produced inside the core of a nuclear reactor. So the kind of nuclear reactor that would be producing nuclear energy, but likely much, much smaller. If it was critical, so the chain reaction was underway and it exploded, these are the kind of isotopes that we would expect to see. But we would also expect to see some other isotopes if that had happened. So that's a bit of a mystery. Is it that we just haven't detected those? Is it that they have been detected, but the authorities in Russia are not telling us that? Or perhaps they weren't there? And in which case, then maybe it wasn't actually the reactor core itself that exploded, but maybe it was some of that housing, some of the kind of safety accoutrement that had some damage to it, which meant that some radioactive gases released, but not actually the the core itself. I mean, pretty nasty either way. I mean, what what was the official line from the Russian government about this? The official line is, A, that um, there's no risk to public safety, which actually is something that most scientists also agree with from what we know. And they've said that there was um, some testing underway of a device that involved a liquid propulsion engine, but also these radioactive isotopes. Well, suggestions maybe, Lizzie, that this was part of uh, some sort of rocketry system. Exactly. So this is partly based on where the incident actually happened. So it was at a naval base and some scientists have been looking at satellite images that were taken in literally the hours before and after this incident happened. And they can see that there is some launch infrastructure there, so potentially for testing a missile, and also that there was a boat out in the bay that is often used to recover some kind of nuclear debris or that might be radioactive. So putting those things together, there's been some speculation that this is actually a test of a missile that's known in the West as Skyfall, a missile that could essentially just keep flying almost indefinitely because although it would use conventional means to get up into the sky, from then on it could be nuclear powered, which would mean it could just keep on going for for at least days. And you yourself have been speaking to the researchers trying to get to the bottom then of what might have been going on. What sort of things are they trying to do? There's one scientist who's trying to do a bit of citizen science, really, trying to gather filters, air filters, out of people's cars from the local area and get them to send them to him in the States. If he can analyse those quickly enough and compare them to this catalogue that he's got taken from lots of different nuclear sites all over the world, that might help reveal what was going on at that particular site. There are some other teams who are using a completely different technique and trying to see what the scientists who sadly died in this incident, what they were working on, what kind of papers they published, who they collaborated with, and by doing that, piece together what kind of activities they might have been doing. And important to note there, as you say that this was a tragic incident then, and, uh, and several people lost their lives. That's right. These were, these were very eminent scientists as well in Russia. And that's one of the question marks that hangs over whether they were testing this particular missile, because if they were, it seems very unlikely that you'd put a substantial amount of shielding on a reactor core that was going to be flying in the sky. So that would mean that the tests were happening without shielding. And these were some of Russia's you know, best scientists in this area. So that's either quite worrying or suggests that that's not what was going on. But these are all the kinds of things that people are using to try and figure out exactly what happened here. 
Well, lots of questions that remain to be answered then, Lizzie. And uh, listeners, head over to nature.com slash news for more information on the, on the research that's ongoing at the moment. Um, for the time being, though, let's move on to our second story. And it's a space story. And, uh, well, later this week, the latest lunar lander is, is due to touch down on the moon. That's right. This is India's mission, Chandrayaan-2. And it would make India the fourth nation in the world to successfully soft land a lander on the moon. So there is a huge amount of excitement about this at the moment. Let's talk about this mission then. What's it designed to do? So this mission is also the first that would be headed for the South Pole. So the Chinese mission Chang'e 4 went to near-ish the South Pole. But this really would be headed right to the South Pole, which is incredibly interesting, both scientifically and in terms of potential uses in the future, because that's where we think the ice is on the moon. But we've not really been able to chart how much there is, where it is exactly and how accessible it might be. So this would be a really big first step if this mission can try and understand a lot more about the ice at the South Pole. And the moon is of great interest to a lot of nations around the world at the moment. Then China had a lander that succeeded. Uh, Israel had one that didn't. It's obviously a very, very tricky thing to do. What are researchers saying about this one? Well, it is. It's. I think sometimes we forget when NASA continually lands, landers absolutely everywhere around the solar system that it's actually really, really tough still. So this particular mission is going to bring the lander down to about 35 kilometres and then it'll have these thrusters that fire to slow it down rapidly from about 6 kilometres a second to almost nothing and it has an AI guided landing system that is relatively untried and that's going to look for a spot that's relatively free of boulders to land in so if it all goes well it will be really impressive um, but there are going to be a lot of people in mission control holding their breath. And one of the things this mission will be investigating are a phenomenon known as moonquake I do think the name maybe gives away what they are, but what can you tell me about them? So the moon has become a little bit skinnier over the past several hundred million years. Um, and as it shrinks, the, the kind of brittle crust breaks and then you get these little moonquakes. And learning about those moonquakes and actually observing them is going to help us to understand more about the moon's core and its kind of size and composition. So there are lots of different elements alongside this learning about water at the South Pole that, that hopefully we should be able to get from this mission. Finally then on this one, Lizzie, another ambitious attempt to learn more about our closest neighbour in the solar system. When can we expect the results? So it's all set to take place on the 7th of September and we should hear from the Indian Space Research Organisation who is running this mission whether it succeeded um, in the early hours Indian time. Well, thank you for joining us, Lizzie. Listeners, head over to nature.com slash news for more on those stories. That's it for the show this week until we return next week with more stories from the world of science. In the meantime, you can get in contact with us. Feel free to send us a tweet. We're at Nature Podcast. Or if you're not a tweeter, then you can email us. That's podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want flexibility? 
take yoga? Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 